Okay, assalamu alaikum everyone. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to an amazing Saturday session. Um, I'm so excited to be here. I'm now I'm wearing my orange. I think people know that when I wear my orange, something is up or something is about to happen. I hope they know. <laughs> and um, it's tonight is I want to I want to start out with a little bit of a celebration, a little bit of a launch. If you read my weekly email, you know what's about to happen. Um, if you didn't, um, I'm really excited to share like a really special project that we've been working on um, since last summer. And I wanted to just talk a little bit about it, but I also wanted to share it. Um, we. Um, let me start with, with like the fun, right? So um, we um, recorded an entire album um, for our dear friend, um, Witsky Marison, who I know I've played her Adan here several times, which is mind blowing. Um, she, we played her music. She was part of my um, Exceptional Converts conversation. Um, she's someone who just was given an incredible divine gift and that was the, the gift of song. You know, she has a voice that is incredible. Um, she expresses um, processes and you know connects with God through music and it was clear to all of us um, you know she she came and um, we met her last summer because she was on her way to UCLA where she is a doctoral student so aside from having this incredible gift of song she also has a brilliant intellect and she's committed to issues of like Islam and climate change and nature justice and you know the world um, you know so it's someone who has incredible talents and gifts and processes through music well when she came here we um, you know we fell in love with her we fell in love with her music we recognized that she has an incredible voice and I personally felt like okay this is now a religious duty for me to um, do everything in my power to capture you know and and make this music available to the world at least through our vehicle you know we don't reach that many people but it was clear to me um, that this, you know, if you hear this music um, and you understand that it comes from a deep love of, you know, beauty and the divine, um, it cuts right to your heart and soul and it makes, it takes you to another place. And I felt like this is the kind of music and um, that needs to be shared. And it's the kind of example that needs to be set um, to demonstrate that you know all of this talk about how music is haram in Islam is is just not simply not true. You know you see this vehicle for connecting with God and connecting with the divine. Our dogs are singing to, <laughs> to um, in in support. Um, so anyway, it became a religious duty to you know I told her I wanted to professionally record these songs, try to help create an album, um, and share it. And we and so we did that. And so um, by the end of the year, we actually had recorded um, 12 songs. We completed her first album. And um, yesterday, last night with my weekly email, alhamdulillah, we were able to release the first single. And so, some of you have heard this, but it's actually, um, it's very special because this one was professionally done and we got to see the whole incredible process. Let me play this, the music first because um, it, you know, then you'll know what, what we're talking about and then I can say a little bit more. So, um, and Witsky's here with us on the interactive group. Sorry to embarrass you, but you know, it's like truly such an honor and blessing to be able to share this music. And um, so anyway, let me, I'm gonna do a share screen here and then hopefully people can see it on the screen to my, to my side. So hang on one second.
I love that song so much. It like it never gets old. I, I listen to it again and again, and it's just it's so beautiful. And I think that you know what's just so striking to me um, is that music. I mean, through hearing this music as as a Muslim and as a convert and as a woman, honestly, it made me so proud. And like you know, oftentimes when you listen to religious music, it feels like religious music, and it's just. It doesn't take you, you know, anywhere except wherever you are. You know, sometimes you feel like it's preachy. Sometimes it's not very special. Um, but this music just took me to another place, and um, like literally, I, I, it just plays in my head over and over again. And so I think you understand, and you know, and then seeing it honestly come to life. Um, you know, we found a, um, a recording studio here in Ohio. And the whole process of birthing the song was honestly, it was like a religious experience too, because um, we, and, and I have to admit, like I really felt like the hand of God in everything, because I think it's really unusual for people to decide that, okay, we're gonna record a whole album and then we're gonna, and then just, it, it just happens, you know, and all the things fall in place and come together. It just had that, that feeling of like, when Allah has blessed it, and things just fall into place very quickly, and um, and it was just meant to come come to life. And we've had so many experiences in our life where that just happens. You know, when things are meant to be, they just it's almost like you can't stop it. And I have friends who who you know like know music, and we're shocked that we actually were able to record something so quickly, and um, you know, and that we're done and ready to release in in record time. And truly, it's just a blessing. Um, and I think that it just um, I took it as a sign that it was something that absolutely meant to be. And you know, this was just one song. Like Shahada was a very special song because we. This was my first experience with seeing how like the whole process works. And just to watch someone like Witsky, who literally did seven layers of harmonies, right, or seven layers of music. So you have like the 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 guitar. She produced everything. I mean, she she did the guitar, the the vocals, then the layers of harmony. Um, and you know, we talk about this whole process actually because after we did all of the songs, we also did a two-hour podcast where we actually you know delved into the music and we got to talk about you know, whiskey and, and, you know, her experience, how she got to where she is and, and just what went into some of these songs, which again was to, for me like a religious experience. And I'm, I'm so excited 
to share that with all of you when when it's ready. Um, so we just, you know, obviously just dropped this song because this was the first thing that was ready for us to release. We finished the artwork um, for the the cover of the the CD, um, and there's more to come. So 12 songs, and every song, like seeing the birth of every song, was truly divine and special and it's like it becomes part of you um, and so I think that when when you guys hear the rest you'll be touched and moved and then when you hear like the discussion about the thought and the process and the meaning um, behind each of these songs then you won't hear the songs the same way again um, and I think what's most beautiful about it is just that connection to the divine the um, you know just the the absolute um, you know purity of intention of wanting to produce something beautiful um, and that connects you with God that is all a form of vicar um, and that shares a message um, you know there are some songs that are you know more spiritual like this one but there are other songs that are um, social justice oriented there's a, a rap song um, you know there's a country song there's a whole bunch of other stuff I don't want to give too much away because it's going to be stunning when you hear it but I, I feel so grateful and so blessed and so proud. I mean, obviously, Asuli is not getting into the music business, so you know, we're not like launching a record label or anything like that. But hearing this music, just it's like you, you know, I felt I had to do everything that I could to to help support it. This is not something that is being done for profit. It's something that's being done for love and for um, you know education and evidence that that music is a, such a powerful tool for reaching the divine. And, um, you know, Witski is an amazing person. She really carries song anywhere she goes. She came here and, you know, within the Sully community, I uh, got all of us singing, and which was, you know, incredible because, you know, who likes to sing in front of everyone else? But she got us all singing and doing thicker, and it was so much fun. And then, of course, everywhere she goes, I hear stories about how now she's singing with someone else and having other people sing. And it's so beautiful because it's just another expression of, you know, what we as human beings were intended to do. And especially when she talks about the role of, of singing and expressing, um, you know, it just it's so profound. Um, honestly, the whole experience of understanding this particular music and what went into it was was a, relig a religious experience and, and very profound. So inshallah, we set a, a launch date for the whole album. Um, as March 1st, um, which as I, I mentioned in my um, in my weekly email, it, this was a gift to me from Witski because this was the date that I converted to Islam. So it's a kind of a birthday present in that sense. Um, and so, you know, and, and between now and then and after it comes out, I'll, I'll say more, but there's, there's so much to say because this was really a rich engagement. And um, I just, yeah, so... Um, thank you, Whiskey, so much for sharing sharing your music and sharing um, you know your insights because you know this is a vulnerable thing, right? When people, when artists create their art, it's very personal and it's hard to open up and talk about what went into it, um, you know. And and so she did that, and 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 oh my God, what a gift for all of us because when you know what went into it, it just changes your whole understanding about things. And it also makes you grateful for the diversity in the world that God creates because, um, you know, some people are just given gifts that, you know, all the rest of us can do is sit back and appreciate and be grateful because it's like, you know, my brain doesn't work that way. <laughs> and that's like, but I can really, really appreciate the beauty and, and where it takes me. So um, anyway, I'm blabbering on and on, but I just, I'm so excited and I can't wait to release more songs, inshallah. So anyway, um, with that, I also just wanted to call quick attention um, to the, you know, really powerful um, khutbah yesterday, as I always do. The title of the khutbah is called The Ark of the Quran, 
and the failure of Muslim capital. And, you know, it's a really powerful and painful khutbah at the same time, um, in a sense, because, you know, and I just want to share some reflections, because I think that when we reach the point at, where we're almost to the end of this entire tafsir, and now, you know, we've completed 92 surahs, but in, you know, as, I off, as I've said, in Sheikh's journey, now he's actually completed the entire Quran, all 114 chapters. And so what we do from here on in is really just the project Illumin take on the remaining chapters that we haven't touched. Um, and this is truly a stunning achievement. And it's really humbling and it's really mind-blowing when you actually stop and take the time to think about it. Um, what Sheikh shared with us is, you know, when you when you look back at our history and what was added to our tafsir tradition, right? Um, like, who were the scholars that added something original to our understanding of the Quran? It wasn't until it wasn't since Al Razi from the 14th century who completed an entire tafsir where there was really, you know, an original take on, you know, that, that added to our understanding. I mean, they, and between there, there have been a lot of people who obviously have added ideas and commentary, translations. Um, you know, I know like Muhammad Abdu and Rashid Rida, I believe, completed 12 surahs. That was 100 years ago. Um, Muhammad Asad, whose translation and commentary we used, that was 40 years ago. Um, Sheikh Sharawi, who Sheikh mentions in the khutbah, um, is in Egypt, and you know he um, has you know original thoughts and ideas um, about the Quran, and now you know he like his work has been banned. Um, you know all of these people who had something original to contribute were in many ways vilified um, in their time, and you know or marginalized or much worse. You know they they had a really difficult experience and. For us now, you know, so so Sheikh has basically completed, virtually completed, the first English um, commentary, bar none, right, on the entire Quran, and then adding original thought for 114 chapters, and no one has done, you know, the thematic unity, no one has, you know, approached this from, like, every surah has a unique moral message, and carried, you know, and understood, like, okay, how did the early Muslims receive this message, what was it that, you know, that they understood about what the revelation said, why were the surahs named the way they were named. These are, these are things that are original contributions. And so we who have been on this journey recognize that this is extremely special. And, you know, once in a century, you know, uh, contributions to, to this tafsir literature. And it's very frustrating when we live in a time when this is actually probably the most important knowledge that we could unlock for all of the challenges that we face in our world. And yet it's impossible to get people to, um, to get behind it, right? I mean, and so the failure of Muslim capital is that we as Muslims, as a, as a community, can support all kinds of things. We can support building mosques. We can support, um, you know, <laughs> like creating Las Vegas in, uh, you know, in Mecca. I mean, any number of things, but when it comes down to supporting a scholar in tafsir, um, it's very difficult to convince anybody that that has any value. Um, so it's, but for us who understand the value of what we've done, um, it's, it's painful, frustrating, and, um, but also in many ways, um, such a blessing because I always, like, I don't know how I ended up on this journey, and I'm so grateful. I would not want to be on any other journey anywhere else, but. To, to learn what I've learned and to understand what I understand now having gone through like this 
you know, 30, 40 year journey, um, or at least just what we've learned in Project Illumin in these last two years. So life transforming. And of course, it increases, um, you know, the burden of our accountability, because now that you know, now you have to step up and, you know, and live, or at least try harder to live up to it. But, you know, it's like, it's hard when you feel like this is what we need as Muslims, and it's hard to um, to convince our fellow Muslims. So I say this just to say, alhamdulillah, that what we've received now is such a profound gift, and, and I hope, you know, that probably I think we're all sort of assuming that, you know, maybe this will not really, we won't ever see, like, the um, the fruit of this labor, maybe hundreds of years from now. People will look back and say, oh, my God, can you believe it? You know, this Project Illumin group did this. Um, in the same way that when we look back at, you know, oh, my God, the early Muslims, if they didn't do what they had done to preserve this message, we wouldn't have what we have today. Um, I hope, you know, that's the hope, right, for what we're doing. And and I'm, I'm just grateful. But I, I hope, you know, I keep just wanting to tell people, you know, share this because people are searching for meaning and truth and beauty. And, and I feel like we've been experiencing that here for the last two years. And it's like I just want to let people know so they can find it. I know people are finding it. I, I get messages like literally every day about how people feel it's miraculous <coughs> that they found us truly. So anyway, I've said enough. Um, today we're so excited to finish Surah Al-Ma'idah with um, a Q&A. I have a few questions that I've received. And then also our plan is to start um, Surah Al-Nasr, number, uh, Surah number 110. So um, I don't know if you wanted to say anything before we start with the Q&A session. Um, but thank you, everyone, for joining us. It's incredible that we've finished Surah Al-Ma'idah, that we've reached this point, and uh, I'm excited to um, continue on with Q&A and the, the short surahs that we have remaining. We could start with uh, we could start with your journey with Surah Al-Ma'idah, right? Well, I'll, I'll talk about Surah Al-Ma'idah and do the Q&A. Okay. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان الله العلي العظيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على الحبيب المصطفى محمد خاتم الرسل والأنبياء أجمعين المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي that the message, or at least our engagement with the message of the Quran is substantially done. Um, the, 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 the short surah, um, Surah Al-Nasr, one of them, which inshallah I, I want to address tonight, that remain I don't have a unique or original take on all of these sort um, in many ways in addressing these sore 
in the context of Project Ulum, in many ways, I'm, I am providing an abridged, short version of the material that I've gone through when I did the line-by-line -line tafsir. So, you know, Surah Al-Teen or Surah Al-Asr. Um, um, some of these surah, yes, I, there is, as we'll see, inshallah, I mean, there, there, there is material that we can talk about that is consistent with the methodology of Project Ulum, uh, but not all of them. But as I said in the khutbah, the arc, the, if you take the, the Quran as, there are many possible approaches to the Quran. And the, the you know, the one approach is to take the Quran as a, a book of remembrance, a book that reminds you that there is a God and there is a hereafter and that there is accountability. And if, as a dhikra, as a book of remembrance, um, then you get that same basic message repeat in, in, in a re repetitive, consistent fashion again and again and again from one surah to the next that is reminding you of these basics. But what the methodology of this tafsir is that the, is is literally the Quran as a moral educator. It's it's like an entire pedagogy, an entire institution of moral education. Which means that even if this tafsir, inshallah, is preserved, you will find that people can spend lifetimes building upon what this tafsir accomplishes. Because you can, as I said before many times, it scratches but the surface. It simply traces the moral arc of the Quran from the essential message of monotheism, tying the message of monotheism to a constant primordial anchoring message to humanity, to, to tracing the moral and ethical precepts that derive from the monotheistic foundation, and then to trace the historical examples in the life of the Prophet and his disciples, where you get examples of the moral precepts that were set in Mecca in action. But when you step back when you step back, you see that it is a 
it is like a school of ethics and morality that you could enroll in. And if you are serious about the moral education you get from the Quran, you could enroll in for the rest of your life. The Quran is constantly, the more you invest in it, the more you gain from it. And I don't believe there is a limit to that. It is as Allah reminds us that God's wisdom is like a boundless ocean. And the Quran itself is like a boundless ocean that will yield um, I want, before going, do, taking the, the questions on Surah Al-Ma'idah, I want to underscore the summary I did at the very end. Because of the role of Surah Al-Ma'idah itself. So, Because there was one element in my summary that I sort of overlooked, um, and that's why I also want to go back to it to make sure that it's, it's set properly and correctly. So we all recall that the Surah Al-Ma'idah starts with a foundational, you can say applied morality, it is a, a moral precept that is affirmed in the Meccan Sur repeatedly. But here, towards the very end, it is approached from a different angle. It's approached from an angle of saying, it's as if saying, you want to understand the basis of all principled moral life. It is your relationship to obligations that a human being can live thinking that they are entitled to accept or reject obligations as they see fit but that's precisely an unprincipled life if your life is well you know i do what i please and nothing binds me and i owe nothing to no one regardless of my birth those who raised me, my role in society, whatever. If your attitude is basically, I owe nothing. But my sense is, I have no sense of duty. That's precisely more what moral decay and moral corruption is. Is that you have no sense of obligation. You have no sense of duty. Your, your, your measure is simply self-interest. And so that is why Surah Al-Ma'idah starts out with the core concept of Al-Wafa' Bil-Aqd. Wafa' literally is that 
and wafa is very fascinating because it's not just that you fulfill an obligation, but you fulfill an obligation in good faith. The very concept of wafa, which is at the very beginning of Surah Al-Ma'idah, it necessitates and demands good faith fulfillment. And, and as I said, that then from, from that, Surat al-Ma'idah sort of moves to the concept of an iltizam that iltizam literally is, is be, it, it's you negotiate life through principled stances. Those, the, 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 that those takalif, those obligations that you owe your God, obligations that you owe society, obligations that you owe humanity, um, and so on. And it, the part we talked last halakha that Allah says, understand that there are these sha'ir that Allah obligates you to perform in order to maintain your relationship to your maker in a healthy and vibrant fashion. Without the sha'ir, the sha'ir are the, the, the prescriptions of ibadat, of, of uh, acts of worship, or um, that without the sha'ir, it is, you are taking by foregoing what, foregoing the obligations that God said, you owe God, you are taking God for granted. And if you take if whatever relationship you're in, if your attitude is to take those that you have a relationship with for granted, it's a flawed relationship from the beginning. So, for instance, and that is why I'm telling you that you can spend lifetimes exploring all these themes and developing all these themes. So, for instance, if you have a friend and your attitude towards the friend is, my obligations towards you all arise from the principle of self-interest that I do or I owe you only what makes me happy. There is no iltizam. There is no principled relationship. And that relationship is egotistical. And it is also an amoral relationship. It is a relationship with more, without morality. And thus, it is also a decrepit relationship. So, you know, imagine... There are a lot of marriages where 
basically the attitude is, yeah, I'm in, I'm, I'm in this because I'm getting whatever I, I get from it. And my commitments to you are all based on what I get from this relationship rather than the principle of wafa, loyalty, or the principle of ishra, uh, 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 um, cohabitation, and the better, the, the, um, the, the uh, fidelity that you owe because of, the, because of ishra, because of cohabitation. So everything can, all actions can either be engaged in without a moral bed or they can be engaged in founded on a solid moral bed this is in everything your relationship with your parents your relationship with your spouse your relationship with your siblings your relationship with your friends your relationship with your job your your relationship with nature your relationship with god either it is founded on purely thoughtless egoism. I'm in this because I'm getting something out of this. That's an unprincipled relationship. It is an amoral relationship. Or it is based, anchored, on a moral foundation. And if it is anchored on moral foundations, then these lofty, virtuous principles play a core role. Like wafa like Ashra, like Bir, like Ihsan. So the Sha'air, well, again, it's a highly inadequate word, rituals. Sha'air is not just rituals, but it is the terms that God has set in order to honor your relationship with God, in order for this relationship to be a relationship that upholds. So, for instance, the first thing, the first moral value that the Sha'air express or uphold and, and further and maintain is the, the simple principle of gratitude. What we learn from Surah Al-Fatiha, right? What we learn from Surah Al-Fatiha is without gratitude, without gratitude, in all things, if you don't know how to be grateful, if you don't know how to honor the right of those who have earned a right, towards you. So if you don't know how to be grateful to parents or to grateful to a friend or a grateful to a spouse or a grateful to your society or grateful to your very existence, if you, what we learn from Surah Al-Fatiha is morality grows out from the tree of gratitude. And so we start Surah Al-Fatiha with Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. We, we express gratitude. Yeah, you could exist in this world without the foundation of gratitude. But then, 
then you are free to define the, this existence you're in in ways that anchor, that undermine the value of this life. So if I say, why should I be grateful for living? I never asked to be born or created. Hence, hence, I don't see a point to be grateful about my life. Well, that logic, if you're not grateful about your life, you are also not grateful about the life of others. Basic morality. Basic moral thinking. And if you're not grateful about the life of others, you are free to then say, well, I don't see a principle that guides the reality of existence. We are then free to say, if you want to opt out of life, you could opt out. If you want to look at life as an, a hostile journey where you basically fight with others to maximize self-interest and that's it, you're free to do so. If you want to say, well, you know, it's all happenstance, it's all an accident. Um, if I'm not grateful for my own existence and I'm not grateful for existence of others, I can negotiate or I can value, put a value on the life of others as I deem fit according to my understanding of whatever um, whatever value I assign to the life of others. It's a very dangerous moral philosophical beginning. But it is exactly, exactly, I mean, the Quran came, was long before the philosophy of existentialism, right? But this is exactly what we encounter with the philosophy of existentialism. Existentialism as a philosophy is a pristine expression of the basic assumption of there's nothing to be grateful for in existence. But that's precisely why a philosophy like existentialism has allowed for, it became a bedrock for the growth of racism, for the growth of genocidal projects, for the, it's sort of like, well, you know, uh, we are free to say that the life of the uncivilized or the life of the alien is worth less than the life of the eye, whatever the eye is. And we often don't realize that the basic foundation is the, if you say the, the, there is an anchoring principle of gratitude towards life, not just my life, but the life of others, you've committed yourself principally and ethically to the value 
that you assign to your life, which is equal also to the value assigned to the life of others. Is this too philosophical? You all followed, right? Okay. So, alhamd, gratitude, that principle of gratitude, and the sha'ira, the sha'ira, whatever ritual we perform, it is a practice, a physical practice of the principle of gratitude. So it is not, I do the sha'ir, or we are obligated to do sha'ir, to the sha'ir, fundamentally to say to Allah, yes, we, we are aware that it is all from you, and we are constantly expressing this, the, the remembrance of gratitude in a variety of ways. Okay, but notice that at the very beginning, and this is the part that I forgot, the, well, I, and I didn't really talk about alhamd and gratitude, which was also an oversight, but anyway, that at the very beginning of Surah Al-Ma'idah, right after anchoring the principle of obligation, all morality arises from obligation. Look at the what Surah Al-Ma'idah charges Muslims with. So this is verse 8. <laughs> اعدلوا وأقربوا التقوى واتقوا الله إن الله خبير بما تعملون يا وعد الله الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وهم مغفرون وأجر عظيم والذين كفروا فاتبعوا بآياتنا أولئك أصحاب الجحيم يا أيها الذين آمنوا اذكروا نعمة الله عليكم اذكروا نعمة الله عليكم إذ هم this core principle that charges right after right after Allah talks about the covenant in in the language of again Surah Al-Ma'idah the, the covenant that bonds you to Allah what is the charge that Allah gives Muslims you have an affirmative obligation here I'm sorry I, I, I forgot yeah. so here, to use the Muhammad Asad's translation be ever steadfast in your devotion to God. So you are, a qiyam is to be, 
is not just that you are upholding something. It's you're lifting something. And qiyama is to serve something, but serving it to elevate it. So here, that you are constantly in, you're not elevating God. That, that, as a matter of faith, we know that God is not only elevated. But, so, be, you are constantly in a state of elevate, elevating, elevating for God. When Allah charges us that you are constantly to witness justice, then we understand that what we are constantly lifting and up, up, holding up in a state of qiyam for the sake of Allah is what we bear witness to, which is justice. And then Allah then not even your ill feelings not even when you have cause even if the cause is being aggrieved do not allow that to stray you to cause you to stray away from your focused obligation towards God and justice. So, the, at the heart of the covenant is that you are constantly in a state of service. In order to witness justice, you must serve justice. And serving justice and witnessing justice is a necessary parallel to serving God and witnessing for God. Then, after that, Allah starts telling us the story of what, reminding us, because we are reminded of it, it's not we are informed of it for the first time, we, we are reminded of how the, those previous nations who've received the mithaq, the covenant, have failed it. And what I said last halaqa about, you know, all the, the, the misunderstanding, the, the purpose of the covenant, uh, um, uh, ill will, um, co- corruption, um, uh, cowardliness, um, lack of... Uh, willpower, all the different ways that you can, all the, or hulu, extremism and understanding what hulu is, is you, you're pedantic about the sha'ir, but the sha'ir no longer serve a moral cause. So you, you do rituals for the sake of rituals, not because they, they, they work, it's like, the, uh, the moral arc of the Quran is like a clock, right? It, it, the, this clock, it's like, instead of keeping time, time, it's keeping morality. It's ticking away in a moral order constantly. 
if you come and you do the rituals and you forget about the, all the other mechanisms that constantly work serving a moral order, you've disrupted the entire thing. The, the clock is not going to work. And that, Surat al-Ma'idah, when it unpacks the failures of those who received the covenant before us and warns us about not repeating these failures, look at the, the heart of it, at the very core of it, is that while Allah has said that the core to the covenant, the core to the very moral understanding of gratitude is that you constantly, you on this constant state of vigilance for Allah and for justice, well, these people, and remember that what the, the constant complaint of Surah Al-Ma'idah are that the Israelites or the Christians are coming to the Prophet and saying, well, you know, endorse our corrupt systems of justice, endorse our privileges, endorse our exceptions, endorse the, 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 the way that we've distorted. And Allah coming in and saying, you can't do that. God's law is one. Not God's rituals are one, but God's law, God's moral law is one. So in the same way that I'm told you, uphold justice, bear witness, I've told them the same thing, uphold justice, bear witness. And when they come to you and they want to, you know, uh, sort of, uh, what do you call it, play, uh, uh, what's the expression? Negotiate. Huh? Negotiate. Like, you know, weasel around the precepts of justice. Uh, that's a violation of hukmullah. And then what we've said about then what is the consequences of failing the covenant? And, you know, we talk about original contributions, and it is a core original contribution of this tafsir that the consequence of failing the covenant is a state of tih. Remember this word, tih. Tih is being uprooted, rootlessness, confusion. Tih is when you don't know what's up or down, when you exist in a state of anxiety every day because you're not sure of anything anymore. You're not sure. Do you, you know, really? You know, is it real? Am I going to really come back to life? After death, really, is death not the end? You know, does God really exist? Oh, you know, I'm having a crisis of faith because I read something bad about the prophet here or there. That's a state of tea. That's tea. And if that threat or that a lot warning us about this and says, in the state of tea, it's like you revert back to a state against nature. Another, another 
critical concept that you know there, there are all these people who like to talk you know it's you know academic fads and one of the academic fads today is Islamic law and natural law what is when Allah talks about the state of jahiliya and and connects that to the way that one brother knows how to be morally grateful the other brother is his relationship to the morality of gratitude has been corrupted by egoism and Allah describes this as this as the original crime. If you've read Thomas Aquinas, then or Maimonides, something dawns on you, and also, of course, Khadi Abdul Jabbar, who who is is develops some of these themes, is that an incredible act of plagiarism took place in history. The whole so-called natural law tradition in the West, it, it, it didn't t- simply copy concepts, but it creatively and often originally, quite originally, reconstructed concepts. So they benefited in the same way that Muslims benefited from the Greek tradition those folks benefited from the Islamic tradition tremendously. Okay. Now, and Allah warns us, and again, in terms of, what we, you know, things that if this tafsir is lost, they will be lost until someone else recreates them or rediscovers them. That the consequences of tea is not just opening the door to shaitan in corrupt practices, but you effectively become as mindless as apes and as covetous as wine as swine. And the state, the social, instead of being bound by civic social relationships and a civic moral order between the parts of society, there is adawa and baghdad. There is rancor and hate and aggression. Every one of you suspects every other one of you. You all suspect, you're all weary of each other because you can't trust each other. But something that, subhanAllah, it, it, it really only dawned on me very recently is that, yeah, I realize that one of the things that Allah also warns us about is when the Quran talks about the Israelites saying God's, God is poor and we are rich. And this is in a state of tea, that the covenant has been broken. 
And what God is, the, 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 the moral issue here is bukhl, is stinginess. And although I have been begging Muslims to spend on the causes they believe on, believe in, Do you see the state of tea that Muslims exist in? Do you see the extent of the curse of stinginess among Muslims? That that blows your mind. It's truly a curse. Yani when you see Muslims that go on trips to Europe and spend in a trip, you know, some families, unfortunately, I know some of them, well, well you know, spending half a million dollars or even a million dollars on a, a, a two-week trip is, is a non-issue. But then come and try to convince them to even part with a thousand dollars to serve something in which they are not going to be the centerpiece of. So if you tell them, give me, give me $10,000 for an Islamic center and you're going to be in the board of that Islamic center, they might do it. But if you say, spend money for something where your name is not going to appear and you're not going to be the, the, the central authority, you, you, what Surat al-Ma'idah warns about, it, it is astounding. But it really didn't come home to me. Yeah, I realized years ago that the repast al-Ma'idah, which Muslims called the Surah al-Ma'idah, because they understood and, and you find expressions, as I said, these, these mind-boggling reports to some of the earliest authority, Ma'idatuna Qur'an. And this will unlock the, the entire Surah Al-Ma'idah for me. To find, you don't find it in later tafsir, by the way. But even in Tabari, you don't find that expression. You find... Riwayat that such and such said Ma'idatuna Quran. And of course that was the, the key that unlocked everything. Because they they and especially when when they said that in Ma'idah was symbolic, it's not actual food, but they their trust was you know that the repast that were they supposed to have received. But our repast But then, only recently, as far as my dynamic with the Quran, the people who have been, who have, who have listened to this tafsir, this tafsir itself is a repast. It's a ma'idah. And
that the the challenge of pres- of preservation in an ummah that I mean look as as a as an ummah in the modern age time and time again our most cherished inheritances have been destroyed and the ummah is silent. A 500-year-old mosque in India was just destroyed. Uh, C.G. Worman talked about it. And people, people react to the burning of the Quran more than they react to the destruction of their history. This is, this is a moral affliction. When you you do not react to the erasure of your character and identity. History is your identity. But history is not just buildings. History is also an intellectual history. It is the history of ideas and thought. This scholar produced this. This intellectual produced that. This pre- we in the modern age have become a people who are adept at not preserving their heritage. Everything from our manuscripts that end up in European institutions that are constantly pillaged and depleted to all the, even Jabal Uhud now in Saudi, that's being gutted and destroyed. And even the destruction of Jabal Uhud will not get a Muslim or most Muslims to say Jabal al-Huda was destroyed long before Jabal Uhud to turn Mecca into Las Vegas. Nothing. Now, if if you thought this was bad, I could sit here and write volumes about the way that we failed to preserve intellectual legacies since the age of modernity. You know, our ancestors were good about preserving Ghazali, preserving Razi, preserving Ibn Rushd. But we, the average Muslim, even the average educated Muslim, has no clue the number of intellectuals who have produced original insights who were completely allowed to be forgotten and erased from memory. Because of what I talked about in the khutbah, how cowardly Muslim capital is. One of the basic things that being colonized has taught us is a rich person has been taught to always be scared about spending on Islam or to be weary, anxious about spending on Islamic institutions 
because they're always weary. They're always in a people that don't value thought and don't value the blessing of ideas, the blessings of talent. It's like, you know, crabs in a, in a, in a, what do you call it? In a barrel. In a barrel. A rich person is constantly being nipped at by those who are intellectually bankrupt, warned a gal about supporting bidah or supporting bidah, or at the same time anxious about their money going supporting people that ultimately might get the rich person in trouble. Well, what if my what if I get accused of supporting Hamas? What if I get accused of supporting ISIS? What if I get so? What this has taught because this didn't just begin with ISIS, by the way. This this is there's a long history of of that type of while while someone who's a Jew or someone who's a Christian, they're not worried about. They're never going to get trouble for for spending money that goes to extremists. So what? If even if they it turn out that they've given money to extremists, they'll learn about it and then they'll say, "Okay, I'm not. I'm going to stop spending." But they're not going to get in trouble. So, the they didn't learn to be cowardly with their capital. And also, there is enough. There is a cultural institution that celebrates diversity, and that excuses you know, offshoots. So even if you ended up spending money, if, if 50% of it produces something healthy that benefits the community, that's fine. Muslim capital have learned to become extremely cowardly. And the, the way that you try to, because you, you, you're always scared, the way you try to make yourself safe is to say, I'm only going to spend on things that I can closely control. But what is a what do you think are the things that a very rich person has time to closely control? It's building something, for instance, that has a theater, that has sports equipment, that has a swimming pool, that has tennis courts, and so you know you can it's safe, all nice and safe. Or building, you know, some, you know, economical uh, interface, something where you can come and, and, and sit and be praised and flattered and, you know, kissed up to for being a, a great, and it's all nice and safe, but it is also largely all meaningless. Meanwhile, your Jabal Uhuds are being destroyed, your ancient historical mosques are being destroyed, genocides are going on against Muslims, and any systematic effort at the production of original Muslim thought is being allowed to simply wither away. Can, do you, can you imagine? I remember the outcry when the Egyptian government said it's going to destroy Muhammad Abdul's home. I don't know if I, I've, I think I've told the story somewhere before. 
me and my friends back then, we snuck through the roof and went into the house before it was torn down. And when we went to the, the, the house, we were shocked. I mean, not just the, the, the chairs that Muhammad Abdu used to sit on, not just the beds that Muhammad Abdu used but we found articles of clothes, and we found books, and we found notes. And, you know, we were, in, we, we had snuck in through a, 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 some, through a little opening in the ceiling, in, in, the, in the roof of the house. And, and, and most of the tradition, even the private papers of someone like Rashid Rida, the private papers of Rashid Rida are not preserved anywhere. They were eventually given to a member, one of his grandchildren, who took the papers to the United States and preserved the paper because he's an engineer and didn't know what to do with the papers and was complaining for a while that he can't find a single Muslim institution. That And I told him at the time, I said, you know, just give it to any university. Give it to give it to Princeton. Give it to Harvard. Give it give it to any university. Forget about Muslims. You're not going to find a single rich Muslim who will say, "Oh, the papers of Rashid Rida. Of course, I must preserve them. More important than buying a Lamborghini." No, no, doesn't happen. I can give you example after example after Muhammad Amara. Some of you might have heard, most of you probably never heard of Muhammad Amar, who has about 50 books, especially his early scholarship. At least Muhammad Amar dedicated himself to, especially in the second half of his life, to, to, to systematically confront and rebut the accusations leveled against Islam by Islamophobes and has produced for, for those who are influenced by Islamophobes has produced truly an impressive legacy of systematic responses not just Muhammad Amara before he died not just was he was he banned, the CC's regime banned him from appearing on TV or publishing or anything. But his family, because of the way they're, they're, he left very little money, he wrote 50 books, the, the government is giving the family hell about the, his pension, although he was a government employee for all his life, and his family is forced now to consider selling his library. And his children say, what are we going to do with his papers? We, we, need the, we need the money to survive because his wife is still alive. We need the money and we need to sell his apartment. What are we going to do with his papers? No one is interested in his papers. I could go on and go, Saeed, I could just go on and tell you example after example. And yet, here's where we are. This is where we are with this tafsir. 
I believe, firmly believe, an ummah that doesn't know how to express gratitude for the gift of intellect and knowledge, for an ummah that doesn't know how to be grateful, where Allah gives you the gift of a gifted intellect or a gifted talent, an ummah that finds a, 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 a gifted artist that writes beautiful music and says, oh, well, barakallah feek, mashaAllah, okay, let's move on. That's a cursed ummah. When Allah puts talent in our midst, every intellect that is able to produce, the, 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 this is the way Allah gifts. Allah doesn't just gift by giving you fruits and, 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 and food and, and oil. I mean, this is the thing. Oil, a far more precious gift than oil is the intellect gifted talents like what I was talking about in the khutbah this child who you know, sings an aria far more important and valuable if you do not have the basic morality as an ummah of gratitude and you look at this and say yeah well yeah mashallah you know, which we've rendered words meaningless the journey with the Quran, I, I have, as I said in the khutbah, I was for years having seen how so many Muslim umam, you know, Muslim communities deal with the gift of knowledge I was very reluctant to, 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 to share it until my family literally forced me to, you know, especially Sharif and, and Grace. I mean, well, especially, I guess that's all my family that's involved. <laughs> uh, well, Mido, Mido didn't force me, you know, but, um, uh, but these two forced me to. And okay, so it's it shared. What, what becomes of it? Um, Yeah. Oh. Okay. That was a very, very long introduction. <laughs> but um, if you have, if there are any questions, let's deal with them. Alhamdulillah. I mean, I. Um I don't think anyone here in this room would have suggested that or been less, would, would have wanted you not to share because, I mean, I think that, you, you know, as even if it's just the people in this room that received this and, you know, we're working so hard to preserve it and, and publish it and all of that, you know, it, it's a gift. You are, you're a gift to, to, to the Ummah now and maybe in the future it, you know, 
the Muslims will be grateful. Maybe this will be the way forward. And that's what I've always believed. And I, you know, I would still be bugging you to share it. And I'm sure Sharif would too. And, you know, let, because no one else can, can, no one else could have done this. And it would be a waste and a shame um, to let it go to, to your grave with you. And we obviously didn't want that to become a source of, of, of sin, you know, like God, like, why didn't you share it? <laughs> but um, this is, I mean, I believe with my, all my heart that this is the way forward. And even if only a handful of people know it now, inshallah, hopefully we can do our job in preserving it, making it available in the future. That's why we exist. Um, and hopefully people will continue to find it. Allah will facilitate it possibly leading to something much more beautiful. Um, but um, let's, I don't know if that, you know, I, I always love to ask you first if you would share like your journey. You shared some of your journey with like what unlocked it for you. But, you know, maybe we could just kind of well, start there. I mean, uh, uh, um, it, 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 the first thing about, the, the, there's a couple things that are, you should, Surat Al-Ma'idah, one, has the other, there's a, like a two parts to, or like if it's um, two parts to a formula. Kunu qawwamina lillah shuhada' bilqist. Kunu qawwamina bilqist shuhada' lillah. One ayah that says, one ayah that says that you bear witness as to justice, and one ayah that says you, but you bear witness as to justice, and, and one ayah that says you bear witness for God or as to God, and both ayahs engage God and justice, and when you put them together, one is in one surah and one is another surah. So. Surah Al-Ma'idah had one half of that. When you put them together, you clearly see that God does not differentiate between service to God and service to justice. That You cannot serve God unless you are also committed to justice. What is that? Well, it's you cannot serve God unless you are committed to ethics. What is justice about? It's, a, it's about, it's an ethical commitment. The, the attempt to achieve justice. So you, you are aware, you know, you're, you're aware that Surah Ma'idah is distinctive because it has that one half of that formula. Okay. Second, you also know Surah Ma'idah is the Surah that has the very famous punishments for theft the the cutting the cutting the hands of the thief and for highway robbery you also know that surah al-maidah is the surah that says um, you will find that those who are truly hostile are Jews and those who are the closest are 
So you're aware of these things, and when you read through Surah Al-Ma'idah, and you know that, that Surah Al-Ma'idah is revealed at the very end, and it's a puzzling surah, because for, at first, when you, when, you, when you memorize it, and you live with it, and it becomes a companion, say, okay, so well, it does it, it the, and you also know from all the tafsir that the impression you're given is that it was a surah that was sort of tying loose ends. It's like it's a very, very end, and so God just was tying different loose ends. It's like a wrap-up surah. Uh, you know, let, let's tie the loose end of someone dying who uh, leaves a bequest and, you know, um, they, they, let's clarify this point. Let's clarify that. And that's not very convincing because then how does ending with the story of Jesus and the repast and Ma'ida, and why is it called the Ma'ida? And why does Allah choose, and why does it start with Ufu bil Uqud that fulfill your obligations, your contracts? And then why does it, if, if it's a wrap up, these are themes that are too important to be simply described as wrapping up or tying up loose ends or just wrapping up, you know, whatever is left over. And it doesn't, it doesn't even, when you read it, and why is this surah, because now we're very late, right? And and if the punishment for theft and highway robbery, so the punishment is legislated so late, so that would mean who would apply these criminal penalties? Well, if it's a profit, it's, it would be for a very short period of time. But does it make sense for criminal penalties to be legislated to be sort of the charge of those who are, come after the prophet? It, so instead of being decreed you know, in the third hijra in order to keep law and order, so what is, why did Allah wait till the end of the hijri period to say something about punishment for stealing and punishment for highway robbery. All of these questions, like so, it, it you you pray, you you research, you you read everything you can read, everything you can track down about that relates to an event that you're told had something to do with Surah Al-Maidah, and you you pray and. And subhanAllah, it's just, I still remember when I start, when, when I, it just, it's as if it was in my heart that the, the key is in Ma'idah, is, is, is that the idea of Ma'idah itself. And that, that is the unifying theme, but how? And when, 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 when you realize 
that the Quran is our Ma'idah, you know, that moment that it clicks, that, that unlocked the entire surah. That it, it, and when, when you see, when, that just unlocked the, the entire narrative of why this is the, 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 the final major revelation and it came sort of it it was one of the toughest surahs although not it, it, it toughest just because it took a lot of research on trying to so for instance it took a long time to realize that when Allah is talking about Christians and Jews ruling by what God decreed, all the tafsir says, oh, you know, Muslims have their sha'ir, Jews have their sha'ir, and Christians have their, their sha'ir. And when you, because you are heavily influenced by that tradition, it, it takes a lot to deconstruct what you've learned to realize that what, God is saying is that God is that says Christians and Jews and Muslims should rule by what God decreed. It is intimately connected to the context of what you're told was going on historically when the surah was revealed. And that is when you start finding these reports, especially in history books, about the late comers to Islam and the extent to which they pressured the Prophet ﷺ to endorse their corrupt institutions of injustice. They, they really did, you know, they, they very much wanted, and, and, and it was reflected in, in the Ridda Wars, in the apostasy wars, they sort of really wanted to be Muslim and without changing their lifestyle. And they, be, would, were sort of obnoxious about, uh, about their relationship with the Prophet ﷺ. So, you know, when all these pieces come, come together and you, you start connecting them, like putting in a puzzle, and then you, you finally, the picture comes, it was, it was one of the most exciting moments in my life. It, it's when it finally, and, and the dhikr, by the way, is verse 8. Um, and, and it's exactly then when, you know, what when you start seeing that the, the, the Quran is really a, Immoral presents you with a with a moral arc. It's like a, a it's like entering a school of morality. Um, yeah, that's. I think it. I think it was the last surah that I did. Mm. I don't. I don't. I think it was the last surah that I did. So where where were we in thousand I think we're yeah thousand Do you have any sense of like how long 
was that engagement. I was at the time bedridden. Um, so that, that's what I kept for re just and I think I, I had I was not teaching. Um, I was either on sick leave or, or sabbatical or something. Because I remember that for three months, that's all I was reading about. Mm. Three, four months, something like that. I mean, it was a semester that I wasn't, I think I was on sick leave. I think it was one of the times, because I remember just being bedridden the whole time. SubhanAllah. That was a really hard time. because. Yeah, that was very difficult. Um, you know, when people like, when start thinking about what you, how much you do now between teaching a full load and um, all the demands at the law school and doing the khutbahs and the you know halakas and even when we were doing two halakas a week, people don't understand like you know this is really miraculous because there was a time when Sheikh was so ill that he literally was bedridden and, and couldn't make it like couldn't walk from the bedroom to the living room in our house in Los Angeles for the longest time. So it's this is such a gift. Um, to be able to do that. And even the idea of you being bedridden for three or four months to figure out Surah Al-Ma'idah is kind of a very interesting thought. Because, um, uh, you know, if that was what God wanted you to finish and focus on, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like, think of what you could achieve if you actually didn't have to work now, <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, it's, I, I, I just, I mean, I want to just make a random comment because, you know, we continue to get, um, criticized you know because what we do is very different and open-minded and you know whether it's like releasing music or talking about dogs or you know me sitting here next to you you know people don't know they come on youtube and they're like who is this woman and why is she not wearing a scarf and why is she sitting so close to the shit <laughs> you know this kind of stuff um and you know and people i think you know word gets around that oh asuli is is something other you know it's progressive or extreme i don't know what but you know what I, one of the things that i absolutely love is Everything we do is online, you know, like literally the entire tafsir is online. Every khutbah is online. Every, um, you know, all the halakas that we've done since Asuli were live streamed and online. So we have a very public record. So when people want to, you know, like basically poo-poo who we are or what we do, um, you know, it's all out there for people to watch and judge, but no one really wants to engage or take the time to do that. And I'm so proud of this legacy, you know, in this tech age of technology that this is, you know, living testimony. And now we're, you know, working obviously to turn this into a published work. But um, it just, you know, I just want to point that out because it's, it's very public. I don't know of any other organization that live streams everything and leaves it out there for people to examine. Um, and come to their own conclusion. So anyway, for whatever that's that's worth. Um, but, so let's start and open up to any questions. Anybody in here? Question is in, in reference to verse sixty four and um, between 
public because I asked you this before, but one is um, give others a chance. And with what you just said, which was um, really impactful and, and emotional, um, especially about Tiyah, it kind of it, it answers the question. Um, because in verse 64, when you were explaining it, I don't remember what day, it was um, in the second half of 64 about that the Jews and Christians will have enmity and hatred and be at war with, with one another. And um, I, I asked if that could be extended to not just being war, but that the, the general feeling would that there would, there would be anger and hatred between them, not necessarily towards each other, but also outwardly. This, like in the same halakha you talked about the Islamophobia network um, that essentially that their default will be um, anger and hatred and war and you kind of see this even um, cemented intellectually um, in, in the, I mean, it's kind of it's a very secular idea that human beings are aggressive and they need to be aggressive and, um, you know, if you want to unite people that you find a common enemy and it seems like the Islamic, the, the Quranic paradigm is coming in and saying, if you are in a state of tih, if you don't have a ma'adah, if you are not based in God, then that is going to be your reality is one of hatred. But the sign of being with God is that you don't need that energy to exist and to see your way through the world because you're not coming from a place of fear. You're not coming from a place of anxiety of constantly trying to guarantee your existence on this earth by putting yourself um, over someone else or gaining some kind of um, financial security you know, or return on investment if I'm going to invest in, in anything. You can, I mean, you're, you're right, I mean, the, I think and I've talked about this with others before that um, the most amazing thing about this tafsir to me is that when you start to understand it, it just opens up the possibilities for how you can interpret it. Um, it mm -hmm. doesn't pigeonhole. You don't feel like when you understand it, you feel like that's just the beginning of the journey. You don't feel like, mm -hmm. oh, now I understand the surah. You feel like it just it opens you up into... A vast valley um, that's slightly intimidating, um, but it's you know one of the miracles of this um, tafsir. So yeah, that's my question. Uh, I don't. I, I'm not sure. I mean, there is no question really. I mean, other than say right. <laughs> Can you just summarize for in case people couldn't hear? Um, I, I think what Sharif is, is saying that the. Um, that the part of uh, maybe the uh, could help if we bring it up. So when the Quran talks about um, 
this is uh, 64, right? Yeah, the second half of 64. Yeah. This is the second half of, especially the second half of 64. The, this, that part of the state when the more specifically about the the um, the, the role of hate and aggression that it is not just that if the Quran is not just talking about that Jews and Christians would be uh, in a state of enmity towards within but but also without as we see it with colonialism as we've seen with Islamophobia is that you are constantly demonizing the other and 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 it, it is i mean it's a um, um for one of the for once the islamic civilization had had anchored itself in the east I'm always struck if you read the history of the Crusades. This is, of course, be long before the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottoman Empire is a special case and and has a, it it's truly amazing how long it took Muslims before they were able to effectively respond to the Crusades. I mean, when it was clear. What a lot of people do not know is that the Crusades managed to cut into the world of Islam and to cut in very deep and had amazing military successes. It is as if Muslims were not prepared to even ward off military invasions because they were too busy engaged in the business of culture and you know institutions of fiqh and institutions of and libraries and institutions of education and art and music and and so on and they w were shocked by the Crusades, and it took them a, a long time before they effectively started responding. Then in, you, you're in for another shock with the protracted, very painful history of colonialism. Again, the Ottoman Empire is an exception. But... Um, and my, my point here is that you you this 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 um, if if you are if you've deviated and 
and and and you, from the true covenant, a covenant that is based on moral precepts, and you have become in a state of tea where you take God for granted or you assume that God uh, that you are privy to God's will and that there you are the chosen agents of God uh, and so on. You're, you, you are often marked towards the other, the rest of the, those who are outsiders to you, with, as the Quran describes it, adawa and baghda, is that you're sort of in a state of a constant ag- aggressiveness because you are relate to the world from is a, a position of suspicion and fear. You're anxious about the other. Um, one of the, uh, you know, uh, the constant, one of the constant themes of Islamophobia, which is, by the way, it's not just in, it, it, Islamophobia reinvented part of the Orientalist colonial discourse about Muslims is that the constant accusation against Muslims that they're supremacists. This is projecting what is within. The fact that Muslims believe that their faith is true and that that they are they they are they have God's guidance doesn't make them supremacists. The, the the supremacists are those who constantly feel that they are entitled to that a land doesn't count as discovered unless they put their fit. So it it is. It is never the land of others, even if others are there for centuries, because it has not been recorded through their eyes and their expressions. That's these are the true supremacists, so the, the ones that say, "Well, you know, this region of the world doesn't exist unless my race, my people, my religion set foot there." Which is interesting because if you compare, for instance, um, not just in, among Muslims, but even among um, Buddhists as well. And I, mean, I don't know about Hindus, but definitely Muslims and Buddhists. Even when they traveled to foreign lands in which their own kind didn't exist, they never said, we discovered the land. They would say, we have visited lands that we didn't know about before. That that sort of arrogant, constantly aggressive, constantly defensive attitude that you encounter in colonialism, that says, you know, we've discovered this continent, although the continent is is inhabited, or, you know, um, anyway, that that's the the and so when when the accusation of Muslims being supremacists is leveled by Islamophobia, and you find also colonialism often justified its colonial part of its colonial project by saying that you know Muslims we we've got to we've got to defeat them before they defeat us even I remember um, I was being interviewed by an Australian 
radio channel and they had some other people that they were interviewing at the same time and they were talking this was in response to the the rise of isis and this was the point early on before anyone knew what isis was doing or or what daesh is was up to and the the discussion was in principle there is a khilafa movement that's what was being said at the time that there is a movement attempting to establish khilafa and my interlocutors who were all professors of islamic studies i was amazed by the assumption how to them it was just as a matter of course it was obvious that if there is a movement in the Muslim world trying to reestablish the Khilafah, we must intervene militarily. We must crush it by force. And when I raised the moral question of by what right? I mean, at that time, no one knew what Daesh was doing. But I was saying... Let's assume there is a movement that is trying to get the people of Iraq and and and, and Jordan and and Syria to declare a khilafah. Why are you assuming that this of necessity is antagonistic? It's being created to antagonize you in the West, and consequently you are already committing to the idea that we must intervene in the Middle East militarily to abort, that, that's a true supremacist attitude. That is true Adawa and true Baghdad. It's like you can't, you can't have the autonomy and the self-determination to define your life the way you, no one would even conceive of the idea that anyone has a right to intervene because the West is engaged, you know, has become a union or a community of nations or decided to abolish borders or whatever. And that is a, a, an embodiment of the of an, of idea of people who God needs to put out the fires of war that they ignite. That type of entitlement, that, that's I think what Sharif was talking about. Okay, so I only have one question left for Surah and Ma'idah, but we've been going for two hours. I don't know if you want to do a break first and come back or... Oh, ask the question and then I'll decide. Okay, so um, this is from Brian. Um, regarding verse 5, what are the theological... Oh, if it's Brian, it's going to be a complex question, <laughs> but ask anyway. Okay. Um, where's he Brian? A complex is he there? Where's okay. Brian? Where did Brian go? Oh, he stepped away. I don't okay. know. Okay. Um, regarding verse 5, what are the theological implications of God speaking to the people of the book and legally permitting, permitting the meat of Muslims within the law of Jews and Christians? Why would the revelation for Muslims be making things legally permissible for other than Muslims? Were there Christians and Jews that accepted Muhammad as a lawgiver but remained Jewish or Christian? Were there historical debates among rabbinic or canon law about eating the meat of Muslims? Um, the verse also speaks of Muslims marrying Jews and Christians. Were there debates among rabbinic or canon law about marrying Muslims? Yeah. Um, I don't know about the, the debates about 
among uh, rabbinic and Christian sources about marrying, marrying Muslims, if there were debates, they were lost to history. There, I, I know that both in the um, Jewish law sources that written centuries later in Arabic, because they're often were written in Arabic, and then after, even later than that, written in Hebrew, uh, or the the law of Eastern churches was a strict prohibition against marrying Muslims across the board. Um, whether, especially for women, a, a woman would be excommunicated if she married outside the faith. Um, and this, this you find in the in the law of the Coptic Church, in the law of the Syriac Church, and in in in, in, um, in every ecclesiastical law that came out of this region. Now, of course, normally the the explanation is that as a minority the minority thought to protect its itself and its numbers. But even in case of, even if, if, if Muslims would, even in case of a man marrying a Muslim, um, which, I mean, this would be actually a very interesting PhD dissertation because if a man marrying a Muslim Christian law uh, required that the woman convert to Christianity. But converting to Christianity to marry a Christian man would then clash with Islamic law, which was the law of the majority. So it, it presented, you know, some um, uh, Cases where actually this did happen was after the French colonial era or during the French colonial era and onwards in places like Syria and Lebanon. Uh, British law in, in Egypt, um, for instance, did not was not as accommodating as the French experience in Syria and Lebanon where... where they allowed a Muslim woman to convert to Christianity to marry a Christian man, while British law in Egypt uh, sort of respected the local institutions and did not allow for the conversion of a Muslim woman to marry a Christian man. Anyway, so if there were earlier debates that preceded these laws prohibiting intermarriage, they're lost to history. Um, but it was what's interesting in the Kalami tradition it was never this, this issue it was always taken for granted that Muslims marry Muslims and Christians marry Christians and Jews marry Jews it, it was never debated as a contentious issue because it was sort of just accepted as um, now of course Muslims were um, 
confronted with a, a rather stark situation uh, with the Reconquesta, you know, where you had um, numerous Muslims being forced to convert. To, but anyway, I don't, I don't want to get into the Reconquesta. But uh, uh, let me see the, the question um, about the, the food. Oh, yeah. Um, it's very, I mean, Brian is right that it is interesting that the Quran says that their meat is allowed for you and your meat is allowed for them. Now, normally, what you find in the Islamic tradition is that they will say, well, what this was basically saying is that it is halal to sell Muslim Muslim butchered meat or meat that is butchered according to Islamic law to sell that to Christians and Jews. And the only thing that is preserved in the tradition is that it... It, the message was to Christians do not have reservations about either the import or the export of meat when it comes to Christians and Jews. I don't, I've never seen anything that had that, that specifically addresses what Brian raises, which is a very, very interesting point that where there groups who, while not Muslim, didn't convert to Islam, but still recognized the laws of Muhammad as legitimate. Um, you know, did, did any Christians or Jews read these verses as saying something to them rather than as saying something to Muslims that would allow Muslims to sort of exchange meat products with them because it's telling Muslims that whether you consume the meat or you are importing the meat or you're exporting the meat, it's okay either way. I haven't seen that, but and it's one of those things that, I mean, if that question would have occurred to me, it would have been one of those things that, when you research, takes hours and hours and hours because you're 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 not going to find something under you know with a subtitle on this specific issue. So you have to read a great deal of material, hoping to find something that would shed light on this point. Um yeah I I don't but it's an interesting question I mean there 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 were I mean it's if there what emerges especially like when you read a lot of the literature on the Geniza documents for instance now the Geniza documents these are Jewish communities doing business in in Egypt they they live in Egypt. They 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 
many of them were born of Egypt. Some of them had immigrated, were had fled from uh, uh, Andalusia, uh, come down from North Africa to Egypt. And they're doing business with fellow Jews, and they're doing business also with Muslims. And clearly from the Geniza documents is... It was taken for granted that the the law of the, the sort of the Islamic law of the land was the law for all. So for for the most part, what facilitated the commercial interactions was that the law of the land was legitimate for for these Jewish communities, or they never questioned the legitimacy of the law of the land. And in fact, didn't even question the legitimacy of going before a Muslim judge who would resolve a legal dispute. And some of the more interesting material that you find is forum shopping, where certain businessmen would know that they would get a better result in a Muslim court than in a Jewish court. So they try to forum shop so that they end up before a Muslim court. And, you know, how far, when you see a practice like this, how far do the roots of a practice like that go? Do they go to back to precedent set as early as the first century of Islam, as early as the Prophet um, the evidence doesn't seem to be that this is a, an, an Egyptian exception. In fact, the evidence is quite the opposite, is that minorities had, especially Christian and Jewish minorities, had well-established networks of working with Islamic law, rarely thinking of it as Islamic law, meaning foreign law, but simply as the law of the land. This is what, how, you know, we the law we live under, so to speak. Um, it would be really interesting to, to know if this goes back to some precedents in in very early Islam. I mean, I'm, I've I've always been impressed by the extent of cultural integration, the 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 sensitivities that exist in modernity about you know Christians say we will never live under Sharia law or Sharia law doesn't you know is 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 something alien and and foreign and and, and we don't want it. It, it. It's insulting for us to even consider living under Sharia law. It, it's all post-colonial type of attitudes. It, it did not exist before. There's no evidence of it uh, before. Um, which is very interesting, right? I mean, it's yeah. sort of... Yeah. And, and Jim made an interesting comment because also we noticed this, I think, recently in Canada, but um, 
Same was true for Christian and Jewish women who would opt to go to Islamic courts instead of their own since Islamic courts had judges that were more favorable to women in regards to many issues. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, there's some, uh, there's a lot more. Again, if we were, in, if our history as a people were decolonized, uh, if we, if we had, inst if our capital supported institutions of learning, you can find a lot of fascinating research <clears throat> about these issues. Um, you know, uh, objectivity in scholarship is a myth, and all scholars are influenced by ideological um, ideological orientations. One, you know. And so, and the, the, this, it might not define the conclusions they reach, but it defines the questions they ask. Um, thank you. And writing the right, asking the right question is important. Alhamdulillah, thank you. Okay, so shall we take a break, and then when we come back, we can start on surah? Yeah, okay. No, sir? Okay, so we'll take a break now. Thank you, Chef. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, yeah, Rami uh, reminded me that um, there's a French scholar called Matthew Tillier, right? Uh, he wrote a, a very, I mean, a very intense serious study of Christians and Jews in Muslim courts in, um, and um, he documents that during the that during the Amawid and Mamluk period that Christians and Jews um, it, it's, it's it's exactly what I was the, the, this uh, that basically they, they fared very well in Muslim courts. That Muslim, they, it was seen as sort of the, the, the law of the land. Um, but anyway, I mean, so the, there is this 600-page uh, French study of... Uh, and of course, no, no one study, especially in all historical matters, no matter what, how good it is, uh, is a complete description of the historical truth. So, I mean, if that would be the beginning of the conversation, not not the conclusion of it. Okay. Um, yeah, Surah Al-Nas. So, Surah Al-Nas is one of the surah that I did a line-by-line tafsir for and what I remember is that it was it one halaqa or two halaqas that it, do you remember I mean it was it was um, um, okay but Surah Al-Nasr is also known as or as al-muadda that it 
one of the 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 names for the surah that often is mentioned in the Islamic tradition as the farewell surah. And Muadda means the, 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 the surah of the farewell. Um, the fact that a consensus developed around calling it surah al-Nasr and, and, and Muadda became a description rather than a title. Um, I have not been able to find out to what extent Muadda was a serious contending title for Surah Al-Nas. But in any case, part of there, there are traditions that say that Surah Al-Nas was revealed um, shortly after Fath Mecca, that it was revealed a couple of years before the death of the Prophet. There are other traditions that say that it was revealed 80 days, some other traditions say 60 days before the passing away of the Prophet. And the the more supported tradition, in my opinion, is that, in fact, the, the, the tradition that say that it was revealed but days, meaning few weeks before the death of the Prophet. That, in other words, it was revealed after Surat al-Ma'idah, and it is because of the number of transmissions that say it was the last total surah to be revealed of the Quran. There are traditions that say that, you know, this ayah was revealed after Surah Al-Nasr, or this ayah was revealed after Surah Al-Nasr. Um, I have, I mean, I, I have serious doubts about the, the, the traditions that claim a particular ayat were revealed after Surah Al-Nasr. But the fact that Surah Al-Nasr would be the last full ayah and the, how numerous these reports are that tell us it's the fa last full ayah would then clearly give credence to uh, the reports that say that it was revealed weeks before the passing away of the Prophet. Moreover, there are so many traditions that the Prophet himself tells either, tell, in some reports he, he is communicating with Abu Bakr, in other reports he's communicating with Imam Ali, in other reports he's communicating with Fatima, uh, and tells them that this surah is a farewell surah. That this surah is Allah telling him that the end is near. And there are so many of these reports it, coming from various turuq, various chains of transmission, that uh, it's, it's hard to ignore them. And if the 
the Prophet himself understood this as basically saying prepare for your death, then the likelihood is that it was, again, revealed weeks before his death. And yet another class of reports tell us that after the revelation of Surah Al-Nasr, that the Prophet was in a constant state of repeating Subhanakallahu bihamdik astaghfirak wa atubu ilayk. Subhanakallahu bihamdik astaghfirak wa atubu ilayk. That he was consistently repeating this supplication. So much so that there are again reports that people around him ask him, you know, you, you are you are repeating this this phrase so consistently um, that and and he responds that by referring to Surah Al-Nas that Allah has told him and so the formula like is taken exactly from Surah Al-Nas itself. Now, first, let's say something about the, the, the formula itself. Tasbih is the witnessing or acknowledging tanzihullah that that Allah is unlike uh, unlike anything and that Allah is singular and that we know Allah we know sifatullah we know the the attributes that Allah has communicated to us as attributes of Allah, but Allah in Allah's self is inaccessible to us, that we are limited by the limitations of our reality, our perception, our comprehension is limited by the limitations of human consciousness. Allah is is singular, unique, source of all source. So, tasbih, sabbih, bihamdi rabbika is is the acknowledgement, the witnessing, the remembering of the singularity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Second, bihamdi rabbik, that the, is that the bond between the, the ethical or the, the core moral relationship between the created and the creator 
is the acknowledgement of gratitude. As we said, this core moral value that was affirmed in Fatihat Kitab itself that you are anchored the anchor, the purpose, the meaning, the beginning, the end, and what follows from any end is all contingent on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And So, and the humility of ask Allah for forgiveness for Allah is most forgiving true istighfar true repentance is not possible without true humility it is humility that is at the core of true repentance. As long as you see yourself as entitled, as long as you are prey to your egoism, as long as you are challenged in comprehending the meaning of your failures. Istighfar is not possible. Meaning true repentance is not possible. It's like if you take any relationship in which you feel that you, you should say sorry. Well, say, saying sorry is not, it doesn't, it's not what makes a person sorry. It's, it's but an expression a state of being sorrowful is a, a condition, a state in which you have comprehended the fault, why you fell in error, and why or how you should not repeat the error. It is a state fundamentally of humility. So in this very simple short formula, tanzih, tahmid, wastighfar. These basic elements, tanzih, that's a tasbih, that you are recognizing the singularity of Allah, that you can't draw parallels, you can't draw comparisons, you can't think of God in material terms or attempt to comprehend God in physical material terms subject to causality you, you're going to go wrong if you try to understand God in terms of causalities and in terms of materiality there's no way forward and from tasbih the tanzih and the tahmid that the core moral the, the core moral that defines your relationship 
is that you do not judge the judge. You do not put yourself in a position to say, well, God should have given me this or God shouldn't have given me this. But to be grateful for the source of all good and grateful for the idea of the source of good. That it's God is the source of light and you are grateful for the, for the source of light and the possibility of light. And then the basic humility that opens the door to repentance. Now, now there, there are the reason that this is known as al muadda or described as muadda, the, the farewell, is that you, have, as a prophet, have communicated the message, and if you now witness a dynamic by which you know from concrete results that you are not struggling to attract single individuals to Islam, but in fact there is a overflow of people that are coming to the faith. The instruction to the Prophet that it's as if saying, so preoccupy yourself. What should you now do in, in, as a consequence, as a, as a response to this victory? And the response to this is ask Allah for forgiveness. Humble yourself before Allah. So it's as if engage in closing your accounts. And this is the way that the Prophet understood it. It's as if Allah is saying, prepare to say goodbye. There are interesting reports, one in which the Prophet tells Fatma that um, this is this is the farewell and she cries and then he tells her and you will be the first to follow me meaning you will be the first from my house to die after my death and then she's she's happy um this is a very widely reported um narrative and it's found in sunni and shia sources there's another report about ibn abbas well there's a report first about his father that, um, well, no, let's, that report has problems. Anyway, let's stick to the Ibn, Ibn Abbas report. Is Ibn Abbas is, is a young lad, and uh, Umar ibn Khattab always invites him to join the Shura Council, the, the meetings of more senior Muslims. And the elders are puzzled by the presence of Ibn Abbas, a very young 
lad in the midst. And then as the narrative goes is that then Omar says, you, you know, let me demonstrate to you why I invite uh, this lad uh, to, our, to the council of elders. And he says, what is the meaning of and they, they respond, well, it says that basically be grateful to Allah that Allah has made you victorious. And then he, he asks Ibn Abbas, what is the meaning of and he says the meaning of this is to inform us that the Prophet is, is going to die soon. And when they asked the Prophet, that the Prophet said that that's true, and it says, look, this is the, the proof of why Ibn Abbas uh, has, th that's why I invite him. The, the, this man has a, this, this lad has a relationship with the Quran that is um, special. Uh, although this, this narrative is very widely reported, I mean, there, there are questions about whether it's an, an actual historical, uh, and the question is not just by, by raised in the modern age. It was questions that even raised in the Islamic tradition itself as to whether, in fact, it is a historical. Uh, um. Okay, so all of this is just to, to situate and position Surah Al-Nasr as to it, it, the, the occasion, the circumstance, there is one other set of reports I should tell you about that say uh, the, the Prophet has reportedly comments that this surah is informing him that he will leave this world soon. And he comments that in the same way that people have in this moment are entering Islam in folds. There will come a time when people leave Islam in folds. I have tried to uh, investigate, I mean, this is, it's reported by Ibn Hanbal and it's reported by Ibn Hanbal on, uh, one of the Turuq is from Abu Huraira. I don't remember the other tariqah, meaning the other, uh, um, I have doubts about the his authenticity of that tradition. Uh, Allahu alam. Uh, that people are entering Islam in folds and people will leave Islam in folds, although it is consistent with a certain medieval um, style of narrative that, that always sort of expresses skepticism and pessimism about the fate of things, like, like the, the many traditions that you know say there will come a time when the sh Sharia will be lost because uh, those who understand Sharia. So it's it's a topoi. It's a it's a it's a certain type of narrative that you find in medieval so very common in medieval sources that always express a time that will come that with every victory there will follow a time of great loss um 
you know, there are, there are Muslims who who take these traditions as predicting the future, and they of course point to our age as proof of it, and say, look, you know, it's happening now. But I I, I don't know. I I have uh, doubts. But let's go to to the 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 moral import the, the 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 basic message of this narrative or of the surah now again you should know that in the tradition when it says nasrullah wal fath allah's victory and fath is whatever Allah lays open. The, you find in the tafsir tradition that some say this was referring to the defeat of Mecca, that when Mecca is defeated and people are entering Islam in great faults. Some, some traditions that say this is referring to Yemenis in particular entering Islam in great number. And th- this is coupled with the Prophet ﷺ describing the the conversion of Yemenis to Islam as a source of great blessing, and is because Yemenis are, are are the 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 roots of Arabs is in Yemen. But I mean, he says that even in in the traditions attributed to the Prophet, that um, the breath of God comes from Yemen. Um, but again, I don't think that's that's the critical issue. The, the whether it was referring to this victory or that victory, but it is the principle itself that at the point. At the point that you believe that Allah's Allah has made you victorious, Allah has given you at the point of that you consider great blessings have been visited upon you. This is the point of that you need your relationship with Allah to be the strongest because that is the toughest test. The toughest test is not in deprivation and denial. The toughest test is in victory and fulfillment. It is, we humble, it's, uh, uh, the tendency is that we will humble ourselves to God when we are deprived and we are tested. It is when you need God the most that your emotions are drawn 
to saying, I need God because God is singular and unique and like any other. And I'm truly sorry for my sins. And I truly acknowledge God, your role, so please help me. But it is when God gives you, grants you all that you need or empowers you or enriches you, it is the point where you are, in fact, have received what God describes as Nasrullahi wal Fatah. Now, in my view, Nasrullah wal Fatah is the, the most dangerous Nasr and Fatah. It's not just wealth, but it is your sense of being satisfied with your piety or your sense of being satisfied with your knowledge. When that point where you say, where you feel, I am a knowledgeable person, because compared to everyone else, they're so ignorant. Or the point where you say, you know, alhamdulillah, I live worshiping God from beginning to end. This is the point that you are most vulnerable and imagine if you are told you're going to die in 80 days. What is the extent to which you would repeat the tasbih? Subhanakallah, bahamdik, astaghfirak, wa atubu ilayk. If you're told that you're going, to live, that you're going to die in 80 days, you would repeat that formula with fervor, and anxiety and passion. It becomes very intense. It's like this this formula becomes everything to you. Allah, I, I, I am I am in your debt. Allah forgive me. Allah I'm in debt for Allah forgive me. Now so when Allah tells you that when things are going your way, this is when you, Allah alerts you to your need to tasbih wa tahmeed wa istighfar. That this, you can imagine the extent to which Allah is telling you the gravity of the test of the fulfillment. Ibn Arabi has something very interesting to say about Ibn Arabi says that people first that expression people are entering God's faith in large numbers. Ibn Arabi says perception of those entering the faith in large number is a subjective thing. Ultimately, whatever you perceive to be the entering in God's faith in large numbers 
is alerting you to a subjectivity. It's not something objective. Because you don't know what the great numbers are. You don't know what the true what God the true faith is. But you are a perception of it. And the the, the subjective perception of the thing alerts you to the perception of success that what you are seeing as people coming to God's face in large numbers, in fact, could be. In the case of the prophet, because he's a subject of revelation, it's obje- it's objective. But for everyone else, that what you are perceiving is that people are seeing it your way in great numbers. It's very interesting, right? That you find yourself, people are respecting your authority without contest. People are admiring your wealth. People are admiring your knowledge. People are admiring your achievements. But you are true in your, as you're seeing this, because you see things subjectively, you see it as righteous and rightful. So you are saying, well, they're being good, decent people. They're, they're, those who are seeing it my way are good, decent human beings. And Ibn Arabi says that this is the true danger. This is the height of danger to a person's ego. Because when there is, when a person feels ineffective, the person is constantly questioning the self about its inadequacies. Why am I not doing a better job? Or why am I not as admired? Why am I not as respected? Why am I not, why don't I have the rightful position? And so you are constantly drawn to the healthy dynamic of scrutinizing the self and seeking to improve the self. The true danger is what you perceive to be Deenillah, what you perceive to be God's religion, that people are actually coming to see it your way in large numbers. And Ibn Arabi says this is the biggest danger. And I completely see it the way Ibn Arabi sees it. That when Allah warns you, فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرْهِ إِنَّهُ كَانَ تَوَابًا That you want to really, when, when things are going your way, imagine that you are going to die very soon. Imagine that, well, 
then my days are numbered. And relate in terms of your, your relationship to Allah as if your days are numbered. Do you really see it as a clear vindication by God as you thought you're entitled? So is it really a clear vindication when you re-examine your relationship of istighfar? When you truly humble yourself, do you really see things going your way as truly a testament to your closeness to Allah or as a test of your metal. So, while in fact saying goodbye to the Prophet and relating to Muslims that your the, the time, but Surah Al-Nas is, is known as Surah Al-Nas because it, it tells the Prophet والسلام, that you, 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 your, your job is done. But it is a warning at the same time to all human beings across generations down the road that when you think so, I mean, listen, there are one of the things that strikes you, and again, you know, Allah says that the, the truly wealthy people or wealthy people, exactly what also replicates, um, well, actually, let's, let's take it, the hadith that, that, that repeats what you find in the Bible, that it is easier for the for a, for a needle to go, the, the, the eye of the camel hadith, uh, the eye of the needle, the, 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 a rich person, it is, hard, it is harder for a rich person to, to enter heaven than, um, what is the... For a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Yeah, for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. The thing that, and I, and I actually, you know, the, it seems like wealth, is a really difficult test. Because I've always struck by that wealthy people seem to be, and, I, and I've always wondered if this is a Muslim thing or is this really just wealth thing, seem to be very content about their wealth. Like they, they have this, this um, they deal with you like, look, I'm wonderful. I've accomplished because I'm brilliant. And this this air of everyone admires me on earth because of my wealth. So it must be that I'm also admired in the heavens. And truly rare indeed that you encounter a wealthy person that has serious humility or even serious attitude in the way they deal with you, uh, awareness that their wealth is no reflection of their status in the heavens. 
And when Allah comes and tells us that it is at the moment that of success and things going your way, that is the true test. It is consistent with the pedagogy of the Quran that we've encountered time and time again. When Muslims achieve a victory, the Quran doesn't come and say, wonderful, you're great, I always believed in you. The Quran comes and says, ah, be careful, repent to God. It's as if constantly Allah comes and says, the challenge is your ego. And your ego can easily be inflated by victory. So, and you need true humility before your God for that ego to remain in place. And this is the way I understand Surah Al-Nas. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Truly a farewell surah. Um, maybe, you know, since Surah Al-Nasr, uh, which I admit it was sort of early on in the journey that I, I've... Um, uh, every time a dream is fulfilled... or an achievement is fulfilled, I start thinking, I start habituating myself to, okay, maybe the time is up. You know, maybe now that you've done this, and that is a very powerful reminder that you better settle, settle your scores. Um, Every achievement is a reminder that what follows every achievement is, is a concerted effort of humility before Allah. And, and realigning, it's like, let's make sure that now that I've achieved this, that my ego has not become has not made me an imbalanced human being. That I haven't lost. It's as if like you know, you've taken your car on a on a rough journey up a mountain, and then now you've got must realign the uh, what, what do you call that thing that you realign in the car? And the wheels are all imbalanced. The axle. The axle. You must realign the axle of the car. Um, so consider Surah Al-Nas your realignment of Axel. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. <coughs> I realized that um, I, look, I was not looking at my phone and some people were texting me that we were having technology issues. So I'm sorry that I think you guys missed some of what Sheikh was saying. Um, but that's always a good sign. Whenever we start having technology glitches, you know that something really important is being said. Devil but, attacks. Yeah, so alhamdulillah, um, I, you know, w when you guys, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll edit the uh, the recording, with, you know, inshallah, we captured everything and, and we'll upload it. It's worth listening to again, but just to summarize, it was about the, um, that basically when, you know, wealth is a really difficult test, when success, when things are going well is sort of the time when, you know, these are in my words when you start getting comfortable and you start thinking that you're you're good you know but it's like when things are 
not going well is when you're still in that mindset of, well, maybe, you know, I, you're still checking yourself and you're trying to figure out why things aren't working. And, and that's actually a much healthier way than assuming you're good, you know, and that it's time to, when, when you have victory, when God gives you that victory and that success, that, that actually is a time to draw closer and remember and keep your ego in check and, um, you know, challenge your ego. So, and focus on your humility so and, and get your affairs in order but uh, definitely re-listen to that last part because it was really really powerful um, thank you Sheikh so much for this entire um, you know engagement and, and surah, it's like even going back to you know Surah Al-Nasr and um, you know it's so fascinating because it's like we it feels like we did it back in 2018 so it's been um, five years I can't even believe it um, so the time passes and um, that was you know a line by lines uh, um, tafsir <clears throat> but um, you know it, it like this whole um, engagement like when I look back to where we were where you know back then and just even my mindset my feeling my connection to the Quran it's just changed so drastically um, through this whole engagement and that's such a gift um, and you know it's it's such a heavy burden, but you realize that this is truly um, you wouldn't want it any other way. I mean, there's just really no words to express how meaningful this is and how um, it's such a, a source of of growth and comfort and everything. I mean, it's just everything. So thank you so much. I'm I'm so grateful um, <clears throat> for you sharing this and and so much of what as usual, so much of what we covered in this sura and in this um, this day addresses a lot of what's been happening in in our time in our our moment you know and so um alhamdulillah for everything thank you everyone for being with us and uh i hope you have a wonderful rest of the weekend and uh, this is now we finished 93 suras project illuminate how many left so that means we have 11 no no i'm sorry 21 math 21 <laughs> But we've done them before, so now we're just yeah, we can we can go through and capture okay. the essence of each one. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Have a wonderful week. We will see you soon, inshallah. <laughs> Did Witsky leave? No, Witsky. Oh, Witsky. So thank you so much. Um, your manager, your former manager, is no, his current manager. What do you mean, I'm current manager? Oh, I thought you resigned. No. Oh. Would you like to come up and say a few words about this? <laughs> he's taking credit. He's taking credit for your for your music, Whiskey. He's he's saying that uh, it's it's his managerial skills that uh, that. You know. I can't tell you the number of emails that I've gotten saying, "Wow, we love your song." <laughs> he's saying Why that uh, Rami's saying that he can't tell you the number of emails he's received saying, "Wow, we love your song." <laughs> The Ramager. <laughs> well, you weren't there for the birthing process, though. You're like the absentee father. So, but alhamdulillah, you were there in spirit. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you guys, great to see you. Assalamu alaikum. Oh my God, I forgot to ask for questions. Did you have a question? Did you have a question?
questions and comments. <laughs> Everybody come back. Yeah, let's just let's just go to eleven. <laughs> what time is what about it? The Q no, but wait, we want to capture this. No, it's, no, Joe. No, just just reflection on what how you were saying about Ibn Arabi. Like success can lead to arrogance, complacency, but it almost feels like the surah was saying it feels Here. like the surah was a reminder that it's not a numbers game. You know, this was never about numbers. Mm -hmm. Truth does not become more true by virtue of its square following, and truth does not become falsehood by virtue of its so just never forget. And it made me think of Muslims today. How many times do Muslims today say, Islam's the fastest growing religion yeah. in the world? Islam's mm -hmm. a dying religion in terms of substance. Yeah. Just because Muslims are having far too many kids. You know, yeah, that doesn't like, make it, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, truth is this. Because you look at all these, and you can mm -hmm. almost subconsciously make the truth contingent on numbers. It's not about the yeah, uh, that's actually yeah, that's, that's a really, a really good, good point. point. I mean, if you want to say anything, I'll add it to the ed edited version. Uh, no, I mean, it, it's actually um, yeah. I'm, I know. It's, I mean, I'm happy you raised this point that it, it's it's that it's like saying okay, well, you you see people entering in afwaj in, in in large numbers and it, it, and it, then it's it's say well so w w your reaction to this is fastaghfir and it's as joe's saying that um it, it's not the afwaj that uh, that affirm the truth it's it's actually your humility before the god that affirms the truth fastaghfir and it's it's a, it's again consistent with the quranic style for to every time there is a victory it's like be careful what what you, what conclusions you draw from your victory what conclusions you draw from success it's not that that's not the, what, what's important which is its core to the dynamic of moral perception every school of moral inquiry is it tells you it's not about impressionism. It's not what imp what what imp impressions you you get. It's about the the belief of core structures of right and wrong. And yeah, I mean the, the and then the other thing is that so can you imagine Muslims today? They they're always like, oh, Islam is the fastest growing religion because they have a lot. Of, you know, Muslims have more kids than. Can you imagine if the Quran said? Uh, you know, it, it, can you imagine how silly it would have been if the Quran said, You know, multiplying in huge numbers. Can you, uh, huh? can you translate? Yeah, it means if, if, oh, if Allah's victory comes and you see Muslims multiplying great numbers, you know, then, then. What victory is that? Which is so, I mean, it's so silly. It's what, uh, the government of Iran right now is uh, um, encouraging people to have more children, and they're actually offering them bonuses. They can, they are allotted for certain amount of loan to get, which is very why. Hard to get. 
Because no, it's, a not, not a, it's a Kasparuna. It's a Kasparuna. Oh my God. It's like bodies and but Joseph, like you said, it's like Islam is substance-wise. Islam is a dying religion. It's not. Uh, it's not a victorious religion at all. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's just uh, me. It, it, the, the contrast. I really think that it's like when when Quranic studies or Quranic engagements went down the tubes. That that was that was it. When our relationship, because when we when have we been? I mean, what has defined us morally? As as a you know as a as we are. Ancient civilizations and most ancient civilizations in the modern age are not faring well. They're, 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 they've spent their, their power and their... So if, if there's anything in us that would give us the, the power of relevance again, it's not the ancient history. It's the moral content. And the moral content has always been captured in that, in that miraculous text, the Quran. Beyond that, nothing in Arab or Persian or Turkish or, or in, nothing in their, in their histories, none even of their texts are, can be authenticated. So, you know, Zoroastrian texts, authentic Zoroastrian texts, pre-Islamic, highly contested. Any moral cultural text of Turks before Islam, non-existent. Arabs, Arabic poetry before Islam, very low moral content. You can't build anything upon it. And so there are people who are like, they're resentful that the only true cultural moral content came with Islam, in Islam. Well, okay, but you're like a person who's shooting themselves in the foot. You're angry that it's in Islam, so you want to throw it out. And then what? leave what behind? Nothing. Then there's just emptiness. It's like the, the, the Turks that you, that you, you meet who you know, are anti, anti-Islam. Okay, so what do you have? Uh, Turkic ethnic element? That's an ethnicity, pure race. And then, and that's why it also descends very quickly into a form of fascism. It's sort of like Turkish fascism vis-a-vis Afghans, vis-a-vis Arabs, vis-a-vis Persians. And and, and that's the repeated constant process. I mean, um, I, and that's why I think like European, so the West generally, they're secular, but not really. I mean, they're secular in the sense that they don't ha- don't have governments that rule in God's name. But they're not secular in the sense that they embrace and celebrate the intellectual tradition that is interwoven with the religious tradition. You can't separate 
the, the, the intellectual tradition of the West from their religious tradition. And this is the part that Muslims are completely, you know, the Muslim seculars are completely, but on the other end, you know, the Muslim non-seculars who, who then don't understand, the, you know, the minute you put God in, 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 in a seat in power, you, you define God as a, as a political tyrant. And it's a, it's a blasphemy against God. And between these two parties that are equally, you know, we, we remain trapped.